All right, so growing up, whenever we did the poetry units in grade school, I very quickly realized I am not good at poetry, okay? Very quickly, I don't know if you had that in grade school growing up, but every year it felt like we had like one month out of the year where we kind of just worked on poetry, learned different forms of poetry, and then tried to, to do that poetry, write that poetry, I guess. See, this is why I was bad at it. I call it doing poetry, like write that poetry. And I'd find out very quickly, I'm not good at analyzing poetry. I'm not good at making poetry. In fact, I have a memory of going up to one teacher where she had given us this poetry assignment. I can't remember the genre, but, and, and I felt like for once, I was like, you know what? I'm really going to pour my heart and soul into this. I'm really going to try here to write a poem. I write it out. I bring it up to my teacher, and she just goes, this is not poetry, <laughs> Anthony. Take this back, redo it. And I remember just being like, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing wrong at this point. And so from many years of my life, especially in grade school, I realized that I just, poetry is not my thing. Today, we're starting a series in Isaiah chapters 40 through 55. And chapters 40 through 55 is actually one long poem, Okay. I should do great, all right? I should do great preaching this to you guys. But Isaiah 40 through 55 is one long poem. In fact, it's such a grand and great poem that there are poems within poems of Isaiah 40 through 55. But it is this one long, beautiful poem talking about this servant king, which is what we've called the series, that is going to bring about this restoration that God has promised to bring his people. And so that's the series that we're starting today, Isaiah 40 through 55. It's one long poem. We are going to be flexing our poetry genre of scripture muscles this morning. If you don't know this about the Bible, the Bible is all sorts of genres of, of literature. And that means that God communicates to us with all sorts of genres of literature. And so sometimes we, how we read certain genres really uh, matters because then it helps us to understand what God is speaking to us. And so we're going to be in this series for about nine weeks going through these chapters. We're going to be going through like whole chapters at a time or one to two chapters at a time. And we're going to be covering really the big themes of these chapters because they usually get fleshed out over a whole chapter. And so I know normally you guys are used to me reading like every verse of the passage that we're in, but we'll probably only read little portions of these chapters as we're in that kind of help encapsulate what those chapters are about. So that's what the series is going to look like. I'm really excited about this series. I got to help craft and make this series for, for all of redemption, so I'm really stoked to be in this series, even though I'm not really good at poetry. And so uh, so today, what we're going to do, uh, here's how the sermon is structured today. We're going to start off with a bit of an introduction of the book of Isaiah, and even just trying to understand where is Israel, the people of God, where are they at in their history? as the people of God because that will help us to, to understand Isaiah better. And then so after we kind of do a bit of an introduction, what I want to do is I want to look at two messages from chapter 40 of Isaiah that chapter 40 of Isaiah is trying to communicate to the people of God in that time and that place and understand what that message is. There will be two of them. And then I want to take each of those messages, and as we're looking at what God is saying to the people in that time and place, we'll see how is God using those same words to speak to us today in our time and place. So that's uh, a bit of what we'll be doing today, okay? So 
Let's first introduce ourselves to the book of Isaiah as a whole. So first question right away is like, who is Isaiah? Uh, Isaiah was a prophet uh, in, that lived in Jerusalem. And so if you're not familiar with the Bible and the story of the Bible, there's two parts of the Bible. There's the Old Testament, there's the New Testament. And this book of Isaiah is in this part of the Bible called the Old Testament. And God would often send these prophets to speak his word to his people, often to get his people to turn back to him, to remember things about him, to correct behavior, all kinds of things. And Isaiah was one of these prophets, and he lived in Jerusalem, and he lived in Jerusalem in the time in Israel's history where they were just about to be taken over by another nation. So Isaiah's life, the last years of his life, are in this time period where, where it's the last days that Israel is going to be its own sovereign nation before something happens to them that, that most theologians and people call the exile of Israel when Assyria comes in and takes over Israel. So the first 39 chapters of Isaiah is Isaiah speaking to the people of God in this time and place before this exile happens. A lot of the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are just filled with judgment, okay? Like these, these are the parts of the Bible when you get to your yearly reading plan and you get to it, you're like, this is depressing. Because a lot of what Isaiah is saying in the first 39 chapters to the people of God is turn away. Turn away from your way of doing life. Turn back to God. You are supposed to display God and who you are, and you're not. And if you don't, exile is coming. And this is like the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. And yet there's these moments, even in these first 39 chapters, where there's these, a lot of messages of judgment. There's these moments where God is speaking to his people and saying, hey, hope is coming restoration will still come. In light of this exile and this soon coming judgment, there will be hope coming, okay? And so to understand even a little bit more where Israel is at in their history, uh, it's good to know just kind of the basic story and plot line of the Old Testament and the Bible. I notice for us as Christians, a lot of us have a hard time understanding the Old Testament, and so a lot of us don't read it very often, and that makes sense because it was written a really long time ago. And so first, I want to suggest a book I've suggested before. You should read this book called The Epic of Eden by Sandra Richter. It is a really easy-to-read book, and it is a great introduction to the Old Testament, and it will help you understand the Old Testament better and how it connects to the New Testament and how the Bible as a whole is one flowing story. And so I would suggest that. But to, to understand the plot line of the Bible before we see this, these kind of oracles of judgment from Isaiah, we have to understand that the story of the Bible, the history of the world, starts with God created everything, and everything is good. Humanity is good. They're created to be with God, live with God. But then sin, sin enters the world through humanity, and then humanity and God are separated. They're separated. They're, they kind of go under this sort of exile. But then what God does is he takes a guy, and he builds that guy into a family, and he builds that family into a people, and he builds that people into a nation called Israel. And he says to Israel, you are supposed to be my display people. You're supposed to show who I am to the, to the world. The world should look at you and see God himself. You should see me, God says to Israel. And in fact, the nations around should look and be attracted 
attracted to you because they see me. And so for hundreds of years, that was Israel's like career. That was their vocation. They were supposed to look like that, display God to the world, and time and time again, just read the Old Testament before Isaiah. They just don't do it. They don't live up to it. They turn away from God time and time and time again. And so we get this place where these prophets start coming about and having these writings and talking to the people of Israel and saying, hey, if you don't, if you don't turn back to God, if you don't take that vocation, that career, that identity seriously, this thing called exile is going to happen. And for the Israelites, exile was going to be this twofold thing. There was going to be a country that comes in, takes over Israel, so they're, they're not their own sovereign nation anymore. And then two, a lot of them, the vast majority of them, were going to be pulled from the land that they had been living on for hundreds of years and forced to be servants and slaves in other nations that were controlling them and enslaving them. And so that's what exile meant with them. And so chapters 1 through 39 is God's, me- God's message through the prophet Isaiah that exile is going to come if you don't turn back to me. Well, exile comes at the, at the end of chapter 39. And this series, we're in Isaiah 40 through 55. So what is that about and what's going on there? What's interesting about Isaiah 40 through 55 of Isaiah is it is a message not to the people before exile came, but 40 starts off with this message to people long after exile had already happened to them. It's this message to the people of God after they've already been through the exile and they were continuing to be in exile. So this, these messages in 40 through 55 happen some 70 to 100 years later to the people of God that have already experienced this judgment, this exile. And so it's important for us to know that the context of Israel, when, we, when we're in chapter 40, is a, is a group of people that have been displaced They've been taken over by two different nations at this, at this point in their story. They have been, uh, they're, all, they're servants for all sorts of kings. They are not their own sovereign nation. Things look hopeless for them. Uh, they, they probably are beginning to wonder, is, is our God, is Israel's God really more powerful than these other nations' God? Especially because back then, the way they thought through that was whichever nations were winning the battles, their God was the most powerful. And so here they were sitting in other nations' rule for 70 years at least. And they're probably starting to go, is our God real? Is he as powerful as them? There's, it's a bleak place that the people of Israel are in. Judgment has come and gone and come again. Their lives are almost like an ongoing living judgment. And so what we're going to see in Isaiah chapters 40 through 55 is that God is going to actually speak this good news to a hopeless people, to a tired people, to a beat down people, to the people in the bleakest of situations to a people that have all sorts of these kinds of questions we've already been talking about, but they, they had questions like, how will God ever bring them out of their judgment? How will God restore his people? Are they really even his people anymore? Is he even really their, their God anymore? And in this long poem, 
in chapters 40 through 55, God is going to unfold how he answers all of those questions and how he's going to use, in particular, this servant king that we'll learn about over the coming weeks. And so Isaiah 40 through 55 is a message of hope and restoration to a people that are hopeless and in need of restoration. Okay, and so that's kind of our intro to Isaiah. Let's hop in uh, to Isaiah 40 now and kind of look at two key messages for us this morning. I'm going to take a quick drink. And so let's look at some of the messages of Isaiah 40 that God is trying to speak to his people after they've just gone through this exile. Uh, Before I say what the messages are, I'm just going to read the first five verses of Isaiah 40, and then I'm going to read the last four verses of Isaiah 40, because I think these verses uh, kind of encapsulate at least the first message that Isaiah 40 is trying to proclaim to this beat-down, tired people of Israel. So, verse 1 says this of Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, and the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now let's hop to verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Okay, the first message that God wants to speak to this beat down, tired, exhausted, exiled people, the first message he wants to tell them is comfort is coming. He's like, prophet, tell them that comfort is coming. And not only that, not only is comfort coming, but God himself is going to bring that comfort. This is the message that God wants to give this beat down, tired people. It's been almost 100 years of oppression and exile. And he wants to say to them, I'm going to come and I'm going to comfort you. All your pains and all your tiredness, all your exhaustion, I'm going to come and I'm going to make it go away. I'm going to comfort you. He wants to make sure the prophet gives the message to the people that comfort is coming. I think one thing this story kind of brings up in us right away uh, is kind of like, why did God even allow this exile to happen then? Why, does God, why did God bring this, this judgment about anyways? And, and, and I would just say this is, there, there are dynamics to God's character that we have to understand that God is patient and he's just. And this exile is an, is an outworking of his, his justness. 
he and Israel had this covenant, this special relationship. Back then, covenants were things kings made with their people. And the king would say, hey, I'll do all this, you do all this, and as long as we don't break that covenant or contract, like, we will be together. What's interesting about God is he said, hey, I'll do this, you'll do this, but even if you break that covenant, I'll allow myself to, to reap the consequences of that. And so what happens with God and the prophets in the Old Testament, he's, he's often saying to the people of God, please just turn back. You can find some verses like this in Jeremiah where it's like, if you just turn back to God, this judgment will not come. And so I, I, I don't know if I'd ever fully be able to answer, okay, why did God do things this way? Why did God let an exile happen? But what I do know is as I read the story of Scripture, what I see is a God who's incredibly patient with an incredibly hard-hearted, sinful people for hundreds of years, where he's just begging them to turn back to him. He's just begging them, like some, how some of the prophets put it, is not to commit adultery in their relationship with him, to not cheat on him. This is the, this is the message he gives them for hundreds of years. He just has this patience, but eventually he says, listen, I'm going to allow exile to happen to you because clearly you want to see what life without me is like. I'm going to let you see what life without me is like. And so this is what happens to the people of God. But what's amazing to me is even though there was hundreds of years of disobedience and turning away from God and worshiping other gods and doing sinful and painful things to the, their community around them, it's only 70 years before God says, I gotta get a message of comfort to them. I gotta get a message of comfort to my people. I gotta make sure they know that I have not abandoned them, that I am here and I'm going to bring comfort. In fact, what God is saying here that's unique to Isaiah 40, I think even compared to the rest of scripture, God is saying, listen, I know I've worked in mighty powerful ways, but this time I'm gonna show up. I'm going to come myself and bring you comfort. My very presence is going to bring you comfort. I myself, I'm going to bring you forgiveness. I love verse 2 where it talks about her sins being paid for. Part of the comfort that God is bringing is forgiveness. God is going to bring forgiveness to the people of Israel. And it is bringing it as he unfolds this word and this message. And then verse 3 through 5 is this kind of proclamation of God arriving on the scene. God says, hey, I'm going to arrive. If you look at 3 through 5, it talks about uh, the mountains and hills being brought low, the valleys being raised up, everything being smoothed out. In other words, what the prophet is saying is prepare, get ready. God is going to come. We need to make a highway directly to us because God is going to arrive. We need to roll out the red carpet. We need to flatten everything so God can get to us as fast as possible. That's the message that God wants to say to this beat down, tired people. I'm coming to you. I'm going to arrive and I want to bring comfort. I'm going to get there as fast as I can. And so what we get from Isaiah 40 is he is the sort of God that wants to comfort and, and will comfort. He's the sort of God that wants to forgive and will forgive. He's the sort of God that wants to give strength to the weary. He's the sort of God that wants to give power to the weak. He's the sort of God that wants to create a hope in himself that's so strong that it would cause anyone to be inwardly renewed and probably outwardly renewed in certain ways. 
And so this is the first message that God wants to proclaim to his people through Isaiah 40. But what does that mean for us today? We're, you know, we're not Israel. Is, is, what, what is God speaking to us through these words today? I think it's simple. God wants to comfort you. God wants to comfort you with himself. The exiled Israelites, they needed comfort, and God wanted to give them comfort, and so he proclaimed this message of comfort. You need comfort, and God wants to give you comfort. Here's the thing about humanity. We are all in exile. Not in a literal sense necessarily, like the Israelites were, but we are all in exile. The story we believe about our history as humans, and this is what we believe as Christians, is that humanity, and the earth itself really, was was created to be with God, to be in God's presence. If you read those first two chapters of Genesis, you can see very clearly God intended to live with us. Heaven and earth meet in Eden. That's what was supposed to be going on. But then the first human sinned, and the story that we see is they're exiled from Eden. They're exiled from the garden. They're exiled away from God. And unfortunately, we have been exiled along with them. You and I, right now, we are not where we're supposed to be. We are supposed to be with God. We are supposed to be in his presence. He's supposed to be here with us, and yet we're not. And so you and I experience an exile every day. Every time the world feels like it's not enough, it's a reminder you are in exile. Every time you feel pain or discomfort, it's a reminder you are in exile. Every time you wonder where God is and he feels very distant, you wonder if he's even real, it's a reminder that you are in exile. And yet, the message that God wants you to hear through the words of Isaiah is he wants to comfort you with his presence. He wants to be with you again. Not just that, not just that he wants to, he will be with you again. He is coming back again to comfort you with his very presence. That's the message echoing from millennia past to us today every time we feel feel the weight of our exile. Every time we feel pain or hopelessness, this is the message from Isaiah 40 that God wants us to hear. He is coming. He wants to comfort you. He wants to be in your presence, and he's going to make that possible. You and I, we were not created for exile. Exile is unnatural to how humans are supposed to live. We were not created for distance from God. The earth itself was not created to be separated from God. We were created for God's very presence. But because the world currently is soaked in sin and brokenness, we need to hear this message from Isaiah. God will comfort us fully and totally one day all through his work. And this poem that we're going to be in over the coming weeks will point out how that will look and how he will do that. 
God wanted a message of comfort to get to his people, and he wants a message of comfort to get to us as well. God wants to comfort you. That's who he is. He is the great comforter. Not a blanket, but, but comforter. I didn't even know blankets were called comforter until I got married. Um, sorry, sometimes I just, like, stop preaching. Uh, all right, let's get, to the, let's get to the second message from Isaiah 40 um, that we see here in this passage. Again, I want to read a portion from Isaiah 40 before I, I kind of say what I think one of the second message is. So let's read verses 9 through 14. So this is God talking to the prophet, saying what he should say, okay, to the people of God. So he says this, You who bring good news to Zion... Go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Don't be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Let's stop there. So the second message from Isaiah 40 we see should be this. God is transcendent and powerful, and yet he is tender and wants you close to him. He is transcendent and powerful, and yet he is tender and gentle and wants you close to him. Look at how this beautiful poem talks about God. It says he's sovereign. He's ruling over everything. He comes with power and this mighty arm of power. And then it uses these metaphors to talk about his power. He says, who, who, who's measured the oceans with the palm of their hand? Only God. Who's made the boundary lines of the universe? Only God. Who has weighed Mount Everest on a scale? Only God. And then it uses these kind of rhetorical questions to point out that there is no one like him, that he's utterly transcendent and different than everything in the universe. Who can give the Lord counsel? No one. Who can enlighten the Lord? No one. Who taught the Lord how the universe works? No one. Who taught him at all? No one. The God that is coming to comfort his people is utterly different, totally powerful, and totally transcendent compared to the universe in which he created. And yet, although this poem highlights the mighty, powerful arm of God and power in himself, verse 11 points to this tender arm of love that God has himself. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers them like lambs. 
This, this shepherd, and if you don't know in scripture, anytime you see this idea of a shepherd and sheep, it's talking about God as shepherd and us as the sheep. So he tends us like a shepherd that just really cares about his sheep and is gentle with his sheep. He gathers them in like a shepherd gathers his lambs. And then my favorite line I love most in verse 11, it says, and he carries those lambs close to his heart. The God who made the expanding universe, who always was and always will be, who didn't need anyone to create him, who's bigger and more powerful than anything, is also tender with us and holds us close to his heart. The transcendent God is tender and gentle. That's the second message that... that God wanted this people in Isaiah 40 to hear that he's a transcendent, powerful God, and yet he's tender and wants to hold his people close, and he's gentle, and he loves them. So that's what he was saying to Israel back then. What is he saying to us with those same words today? Pretty much the exact same thing. Because of this exile that every human experiences, that we all experience, Often we're convinced there's no God. Or sometimes because of our exile, we're convinced that God might be powerful, but he doesn't have anything to do with us and the creation he made. He's really a far-off God, just created us and, and, and let us be. Or sometimes what happens is because of our exile, we're convinced that God is simply just a power of the universe, not a shepherd of the universe, not a person, not a being. Isaiah wanted the message to Israel to be that even though it seemed like God was distant and far away, that he wasn't distant, that he was still powerful, that he's still personal, that he's tender, that he's gentle, that he's unending, and he wanted to hold them close to his heart. And God wants to say that same thing to us. And we need to hear it too because of all of the things that our exile has convinced us of in this t time and place. I don't, I don't know everybody in the room, but I do know this. God wants to use I Isaiah to say to everybody in the room that he is real, that he's powerful, that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the universe, and that God, he wants to hold you close to his heart. I know that God wants to say that to everybody in the room. There's this, this line in, in verse 9 where it says, Here is your God. Some translations say, Behold your God. Look at your God. I think some of us in the room, we need to hear that as an invitation and a command from God himself, not just words on a page. Look at God. See what he's doing in history. See who he is. Behold your powerful, transcendent God that is tender and gentle and wants to hold you close to his heart. To which you might be going, okay, I, I want to I look at him, Anthony, but because of this exile you've been talking about, I don't know if I can. How can I behold God? How can I look at him? How can I see him? Well, here's, the, here's the good news. 
this, proclaim, this poem proclaims this good news that's of God arriving on the scene. And at the point in history that we live in, it, that is really good news to us because God has arrived on the scene. And his name was Jesus. Before Jesus starts his ministry, there's this crazy guy who just gets out in the desert and eats bugs and grows hair, and he's just shouting, and the thing he starts shouting, you can look at this in the Gospels, in some, at least two or three of them, he's just shouting, prepare the way for the Lord. Does that sound familiar? He's quoting, he's not coming up with a new sermon, he's just going back to an old one in Isaiah 40. He's just quoting Isaiah 40. He's saying, okay, you know what God talked about in Isaiah 4? You know how God said he's going to come, he's going to arrive, he's going to bring this comfort? No, like he really is about to. He's going to be here soon. I'm not even going to be worthy to untie his sandals. And that God, the transcendent, powerful, loving, gentle, tender God, has a name and it's Jesus. And Jesus is God in the flesh showing up on the scene. And so if you want to look at God, look at Jesus. There are all sorts of ways to look at Jesus, but even just reading the Gospels, you can look at God, you can behold God, you can see God. When you look at Jesus, you're looking at God. He's not just a person. He's not just an awesome teacher. He's not just the most influential human in history. He is the most influential human in history because he's God in the flesh. Because he is who Isaiah 40 is talking about. And when you look at Jesus, you're going to see one who is powerful and tender. You're going to see one who brings forgiveness and comfort. You're going to see one who brings the presence of God himself to earth. And then, what Jesus did through the cross and the resurrection is actually a foretaste of what God wanted to do as, of, of all the things that he talks about in Isaiah 40 and all the way through 55, this message of comfort and restoration. The cross and the resurrection are the first fruits, the, the beginning taste of what God wants to do in fullness in history one day. And so when we see Jesus, we see God and we see his work and we see what he wants to do with us once and for all and will do with us once and for all. And in the coming weeks, we're going to see how that restoration plan will unfold through Jesus, the servant king. And so that's how this, this great, epic, long poem starts off. It's a message to a hopeless and tired and beat down people. It's a message of comfort with God bringing that comfort himself because he's the God of all power and because he's the tender shepherd. And so church, may we hope in the Lord. May we hope in God. May we behold the Lord. May our strength be renewed in him. And may we be comforted by him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we need you. God, because of our exile, I feel like these words and these messages sometimes just ring so hollow to us. Like they're, they're hard to believe. They're hard to experience. They're hard to understand. And so, 
Holy Spirit, I'm asking, would you just do a miraculous work in us that these words leap off the page in some way, work their way into our heart and into our understanding that, and our experience, even, God, of you. That we would experience you and know you as the tender, gentle, powerful shepherd that wants to comfort us and does comfort us and that we would experience this, this renewing in you as we hope in you and what you're going to do. God, help us to be a people that, not are, that are not unsure about what you will do, but have a more sure hope in you and what you have already done and continue to do and will do in fullness one day. We need you, God, to know that you're the comforter that loves us and wants to be with us. And God, I pray against any doubt, message, whatever in any of our heads that would try to convince us that that is not